0: Welcome to Rayonautical Reads, with me Chris Stanmore major In this episode we're continuing the book Strange But True, The Life and Adventures of Captain Thomas Crapo and His Wife, published in New Bedford in 1893. And we're on part five. Part five, chapter three, to different parts of the country. My stay at home, as on the previous occasion, was very short, as I again shipped on a small vessel carrying freight from one port to another. We contracted for the season to carry oil and grain between New Bedford and Albany, New York. I remained aboard of her until late in the fall, and joined another one bound from New Bedford to Georgetown, DC, and loaded with coal there for sandwich, and again returned to New Bedford, where I remained through the winter. In the spring of 1866, I again shipped on the brig Morning Star of Providence, Rhode Island, bound for Montevideo, South America. It was in the month of March that we sailed, and the weather was very raw and cold. The first five days we experienced very heavy weather, and had to throw overboard our deck load of lumber as the vessel was leaking very badly. The heavy seas striking her and she being loaded so heavily was the means of straining her and set her to leaking, and all the men that could be spared were pumping continually to try and keep her free. When the wind moderated and the seas went down, we managed to free her from water when everything went along quite smoothly, until heavy weather again set in, and again she began leaking, the crew pumping all the time. About twenty days out we were struck by a heavy gale, which played sad havoc with us, as we lost our foretopmast and foreyard to Gallant and Royal Yard. We then rigged up a jury mast and ran into Rio de Janeiro, where we had a general overhauling. After everything was put in shape, we again started on our trip south, and had very heavy weather all the time until we arrived at Montevideo, which caused us to lay the vessel to and man the pumps in order to stay afloat. It was during a heavy gale that we ran in as far as possible, which brought us deep into the mud. We remained there about a month, when we were ordered up the river about 300 miles to Buenos Aires. The passage was made in three days when we anchored about seven miles from the city as at that time large vessels generally anchored from 15 to 20 miles below the city. We remained there about five months. During the time we experienced two severe pamperos. The first one drove 17 vessels ashore making total wrecks of all of them as they went to pieces in a short time and the second drove nine more ashore totally wrecking them all. Many anchors were lost there, not any of the vessels that were wrecked had probably less than two down to try to hold the vessel, but they proved of little avail as they all drove ashore, which left the anchors on the bottom. A new side-wheel passenger steamer named the Oriento, a very large boat, started on her trip from Buenos Aires to Montevideo, and as the water was shoal she was so unfortunate as to strike one or more of the anchors on the bottom, which stove a large hole in her bottom. She soon filled and sank, and on account of the water being shoal, her deck remained two or three feet out of the water. She sank about two and one-half miles from shore. As soon as we saw what happened, we lowered our boat and put in a diving suit and apparatus and started for her, the captain luckily having them aboard at the time. Our cargo consisted of material for constructing a marine railway, and as diving suits were used in placing them, we carried them also and it was fortunate for the crew of the steamer that we were there at the time. As soon as we boarded the steamer, our captain made arrangements with the steamer's captain to stop up the hole in her bottom. I was asked if I would don the suit and go down on the bottom and investigate the real damage. Being young and venturesome, I quickly volunteered to do so. I put on the suit, which was heavily weighted with lead and was so heavy I could hardly walk, and when they were ready to put on the large helmet, One of our crew began pumping air to me to enable me to breathe. It was a queer sensation to have to depend on a machine to furnish air to breathe, as that was the only means I had to get any after the helmet was adjusted. When I went down to the bottom, I found it no trouble at all to move about, as I chose, and upon investigation I found that the bottom of the steamer was so flat and the bottom so hard I could not discover the hole made by the sunken anchor. I remained down several hours without any success whatever. I then gave the signal to be drawn up, and after removing the helmet, I called for a shovel and hoe, and again descended, and began digging in order to locate the place that was stoven. I was digging most of the time for several days, and as the bottom was so hard it was slow work. I had not succeeded in locating the spot when another pampero visited us and swept the steamer's upper works entirely away, which made a complete wreck of her, on account of which we abandoned the undertaking. The steamer was then thrown on the hands of the underwriters, who sold her as she lay at auction. About a month after this, we were ordered across the river, about thirty miles, to a place called Colonia, to put down the marine railway. This place is in the Oriental Republic. We discharged our cargo on shore, and were then ordered on shore to help construct it, as we carried the carpenters with us that were to build it. While we were building the railway, the captain shipped some Spaniards and sailed the vessel to Montevideo where he sold her at auction. As soon as I heard of it, I refused to work on shore as I wanted to go on the vessel. The captain refused to let me go on board and put me in the calaboose, the jail. After he had sold her, he came to me to see if I would go to work. Upon my refusing to do so, he let me out as he had to pay me my board while I was there. After I got out, I stayed about 4 or 5 days and then started on foot for Montevideo, 300 miles away. In some places, there was quite a good road, and in others, there was none. I did not know where I would come out, as it was all guesswork and nothing to guide me, but I kept on going. Some days, I walked 20 or more miles without seeing a house of any kind, and when night came on, I would place a stone pointing in the direction I was walking, so I would not get turned round after sleeping. It was a very tedious journey all alone. I saw a great many animals on the way, such as gazelles, antelopes, tigers and hundreds of ostriches. What few people I saw were very good to me, and gave me plenty to eat. I was nine days making the journey, and a lonesome nine days it was too, and in a strange country. I tried to make the people I met understand that I was bound for Montevideo, and they would point for me, and by going as they pointed, I arrived at last, but very footsore and weary, and I was thankful I was there. As soon as I arrived, I called on the American Consul and received the money due to me from the vessel, which amounted to about $150. I remained there about two weeks and then shipped on a whitewash bark bound for New York with a load of hides. These vessels were called whitewash on account of wanting to keep clear from the privateers by flying the English flag instead of the American flag, The one I shipped on was an American with English colours and hailed from Cape Town, but in reality belonged in New York. We were 63 days on the passage, which was a very rough one, headwinds and gales most of the time. We arrived in New York in March 1867. I remained in New York several days and returned to New Bedford. I then, after a short stay at home, shipped on a coasting schooner for the balance of the summer. In the fall, I went to the West Indies, returning in the spring of 1868. I then joined a wrecking party and made a business of diving in a diving suit. I patched a great many vessels ready for raising, cut and cleared the rigging from others, hooked on anchors, chains and a 101 other things that I chanced to find on the bottom. I continued in this capacity until about July 1869, when I again went to New York and shipped a second mate of the bark Fanny, bound for La Havre, France, with a cargo of petroleum oil in barrels. We had a very rough passage and lost several sails. On arriving, we discharged our cargo and took on ballast and sailed for Cardiff, Wales, to load coal for Havana, Cuba. We again had a very rough passage. On arriving, the crew had to discharge the coal in small baskets by hoisting it out with a winch. After discharging, we loaded sugar in Hogshead for New York. We arrived there in March 1870. I left the vessel there and shipped on the schooner Annie A. Witten, After putting my things on board, we started on our passage for English Guinea, Central America. We carried a cargo of bread stuff in the hold and live sheep on deck. Nothing of any importance occurred during the passage. We arrived and discharged our cargo and took on a return cargo of sugar for New York. We made the trip in about 50 days. On our arrival in New York, I left and took my things on shore and again shipped this time on the brig Gazelle of Harrington, Maine, commanded by Captain Cole, I shipped with him as his mate. We then began loading coal for Boston. We made the run without accident of any kind. We sailed from Boston after unloading the cargo of coal in ballast for Bangor, Maine. On our arrival, we began taking in our cargo of orange box shooks for Palermo in the island of Sicily. We finished loading and started for our destination nearly 4,000 miles away. On our way, we stopped to Gibraltar several days and then started again for our destination. The passage at times was quite unpleasant, but nothing of any serious nature occurring. On our arrival, we discharged our cargo in lighters as there was no place to land except in small boats. We took a return cargo of oranges, lemons and sulphur for Boston, Massachusetts. From there, we went to Puerto Rico in the West Indies and discharged our cargo of breadstuffs in three different ports on the island. We then took in ballast and sailed for Turks Island, after a cargo of salt, loaded, and proceeded to New York, arrived and discharged the cargo, and took on a general cargo for Galveston, Texas. We took on a cargo of cotton for return to New York. After discharging the cargo of cotton, we took on a cargo of naphtha for Stockholm, Sweden, up in the Baltic Sea, by the route of the north of Scotland. We had a nice passage and arrived safe and sound, discharged our cargo, and began loading iron for New York, which took us nearly a month. After completing loading, we set sail for New York. We sailed down the Baltic Sea, across the North Sea, and out through the English Channel. After passing the Scilly Islands, off and in sight of Land's End, England, we encountered heavy westerly gales and heavy weather all the way until within about 500 miles of the Grand Banks off Newfoundland when we were struck by a terrible hurricane. The vessel being loaded so deep and with a deadweight cargo made her behave very bad the water on deck at times being even with the vessel's rails. We lay the vessel too under a double reefed mainsail, and my readers can form a little idea what the ocean in its fury is when I tell you that with our mainsail double-reefed, we were boarded by a heavy sea which struck the mainsail and tore it into ribbons. After this accident occurred, she laboured very hard. If we had a cargo of lumber or some other light material, we would have thought nothing about it, as she would have rowed the seas like a duck, but being loaded with iron was not very pleasant just at this time as she lay to she rolled in the trough of the sea as though she would never rise from it we were expecting all the time she would founder, and for fear she would we tried our best to keep her afloat we got the cargo gaff and hook a small anchor and lashed it to the gaff and made a hawser fast to the bridle on the gaff and dropped it over the weather quarter making the hawser fast to a bit forward and as a vessel drifted to the leeward, the gaff pulled out ahead. This did not seem to do much good, so we took tarpaulins and put them in the main rigging, and then unbent the main staysail and set it for a storm trysail on the mainmast. And as this didn't seem to do any good, we began to throw some of the cargo of iron overboard. We threw overboard about twelve tons the first day, yet she continued to roll and slat about, so that our fore to gallant masts with yards and sails went by the board. This hurricane held on for 72 hours, when the weather began to moderate. As soon as we deemed it advisable to remove our main hatches, we did so, and threw overboard about 40 tonnes more of our cargo. As we had met with such an accident to our masts and rigging, the captain concluded to run to Fayal to repair damages, and as we had strong fair wind, we made the run in four days. When we anchored in the harbour of Norte Fayal, we put down three anchors to make sure and hold her, as we had met with enough misfortune already. We had a survey on the vessel and were recommended to discharge our cargo in order to make the necessary repairs and put her in shape to continue the passage. The cargo was sent on shore in lighters, on account of which we were ten days or more before it was all out. After completing repairs, we took on our cargo again and sailed for New York. Before leaving, the American consul put seven sailors that were ashore there on his hands from a condemned vessel on board with us to bring to the United States. We had a very rough passage, but luckily without accident. The run was made in 42 days. On arriving, we discharged the cargo, and after everything was put on shore and the vessel put in shape, I left and took my effects on shore. I remained in New York several days, when I shipped again, this time on the brig Moronis of Ellsworth, Maine, under the command of Captain Higgins. This was in July 1872. We loaded crude petroleum from Marseille, France. We had a pleasant passage and made the run in about 40 days. We discharged our cargo and loaded tiles for San Fuga, south side of Cuba. These tiles are made of clay and look like a piece of pipe cut in two in the centre. They are used for shingling houses and are sure to run all the water off that strikes on them as they form a regular spout. We finished loading on November the 21st, 1872. The date is fresh in my memory, as on the following day, it was a gala day for me, I was married on board the vessel at three o'clock in the afternoon. The American consul, named Price, and the vice consul came aboard and performed the ceremony. The bride was a Miss Johanna Stiff of Glasgow, Scotland, and in order to tell you what countrywoman she is, I will give you the facts, and, kind reader, you can try to explain the puzzle yourself. She was born in Glasgow, Scotland, September 26th, 1854. Her father was a native of Stockholm, Sweden. Her mother was an Englishwoman, a native of Newcastle-on-Tyne. When eight years of age, her parents moved to Marseille, France, where she also attended school and is a splendid French scholar. She remained there until the Yankee sailor Captain Crapo made her his bride when we started on our return trip. We sailed on the 23rd, with a nice fair wind for the first three days, down the Mediterranean Sea. My wife was very seasick, and homesick as well, for a week or more, which made it very unpleasant for her, but as she began to get better, she soon seemed like herself again. We then had strong westerly winds, and it took us about twenty days to get down to Gibraltar, and as we could not get through the straits, we anchored and waited for a fair wind. We made ourselves as comfortable as possible, not knowing how long we should have to wait, On the fourth day, the wind veered around, when we hove up our anchor and made sail and proceeded on our way, the rest of the passage being very pleasant. At last we arrived on January 1873. After discharging the cargo, we loaded sugar for New York, my wife remaining on board with me. We arrived in New York and discharged the cargo. After everything was put to rights, I took my discharge and, accompanied by my wife, started for my home in New Bedford, where I remained until late in the fall of the same year when I again shipped as mate on the schooner, Annie Tibbets, Captain Curtis of Harrington, Maine. My wife again accompanied me as she was a plucky sailor and wanted to go where I did. We went to Tiverton, Rhode Island to load fish guano for Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The captain's wife also accompanied him on this trip. The only drawback to this trip was that Mrs. Crapo did not like the perfume of the cargo, as fish guano is not suitable to anyone's taste, and the smell Clings to your clothing for weeks afterwards. After being on board with it a short time, one gets used to it and almost forgets it remains in the clothing. But if I got into a horse car or passed anyone on the street, they could smell it very readily and would let you know it by turning up their noses. After discharging this rancid, foul-smelling cargo, we loaded coal for New Bedford, Massachusetts, my birthplace. We were taking on the coal at Port Richmond when, in the evening, Mrs. Curtis, the captain's wife, and my wife and myself. Started to go uptown shopping. The place is completely covered with railroad tracks, and the trains are coming and going all the time. I proceeded ahead to act as pilot across the tracks, when soon I heard my wife screaming. It seems she was walking behind Mrs. Curtis when her shoe heel caught in the track, and her screaming probably saved her life, as a train was nearing her on the same track and stopped just before reaching her. As she screamed, I turned and saw this train coming. When I hurriedly extricated her from her perilous position without accident, but she was badly frightened and will probably never forget it as she often speaks of it. After loading the vessel, we proceeded on our journey and as we had good weather we arrived and discharged our cargo without any accident whatever. After discharging the cargo, we hauled alongside the dock and remained there about two months as the ice was making fast and it was very cold. In the spring of the following year We again sailed this time for Orient, Long Island, to load fertilizer for Port Royal, South Carolina. We had a good passage as far as the lightship off Port Royal, named the Martin Industry. We arrived off there about 10 o'clock in the forenoon and set our colors at our foremast for a pilot. We sailed around all day, but none came off to us. At night, we shortened sail and let her drift around. But during the night, a heavy gale sprung up and the weather was very thick and foggy, on account of which we were blown offshore into the Gulf Stream. The gale lasted for three days and nights, and it was eight days before we got back to the lightship. We then got a pilot and ran in and discharged. We then loaded railroad ties for New York, arrived and discharged them all right. We then took in ballast for Fernanda, Florida. My wife left the vessel here and went to her brother's in New Brunswick, New Jersey. We had a good passage all the way, and on arriving we discharged the ballast and took on a cargo of ship timber for Harrington, Maine. We had a very rough passage many times the seas would wash clear across the vessel we ran in within seven miles of our destination when owing to the crookedness of the river we rafted the timbers on shore after discharging i left the vessel and went on to new york where i shipped on a three-masted schooner named the james m riley of harrington maine under command of a captain eaton i shipped with him as first mate and we were to load petroleum oil for cranston finland in russia Our course was across the Atlantic to the north of Scotland. Across the North Sea then through the Straits of Elsinore into the Baltic Sea. Our cargo was for St Petersburg but as the water was not deep enough to allow us to go there we had to discharge at Cranston about 15 miles below, yet we could see St Petersburg quite plain. After discharging we took in ballast of about 30 tons and sailed towards Cape Britain, New Brunswick. While sailing down the Baltic Sea We had very heavy weather and soon found out we did not have him ballast enough. So we put into Copenhagen, Denmark and put aboard 50 more tons. After it was aboard and properly trimmed, we again started on our passage. We went back north of Scotland again on our way to Cape Britain. We experienced very heavy weather all the way, which took us 40 days. When we ran into New Caledonia, Cape Britain, where we unloaded our ballast and loaded coal for New York. The passage was a very rough one and took us 18 days. After discharging our cargo, we had the vessel hauled alongside the wharf, where she remained for two months, waiting for a cargo. At last, we chartered to load Sugarbox Shooks for Card Ness, north side of Cuba. Had very heavy weather, and lost our foretopmast and jaboom in a gale. While we were discharging, Captain Boynton, a part owner of the vessel, took command in place of Captain Eaton, and as his wife came on with him, I had mine join us as it would be pleasant for the captain's wife to have company on board, as well as company for me. While we were discharging, the two ladies went ashore most of the time, enjoying themselves and seeing the sights. After discharging, we loaded sugar for New York. Had very heavy weather and snowstorms north of Cape Hatteras. On arriving at Sandy Hook, we anchored, and the heavy ice coming down on us drove us about five miles to sea. The next morning a towboat came down and offered to tow us in for $1,000. This was an enormous sum and made us whistle. At last, after some parleying, the captain offered them $200, and after due consideration, they agreed to take it, so they took our lines and started with us. The tide and ice was against us, and it took them all day to tow us 30 miles. We looked like a floating iceberg instead of a vessel on our arrival at the wharf. Everything was ice everywhere. We began to discharge our cargo, which was not a very pleasant job, as the weather was so cold and the ice was everywhere. After discharging the cargo, I left the vessel and shipped as first mate on the brig, Kaluna, Captain Nash of Harrington, Maine. My wife also went with me. We loaded a general cargo for Ferdinanda, Florida. After loading, we started south, encountering heavy winds and rainstorms most of the way. We arrived safe and sound and discharged the cargo, and took on a cargo for London, England. The cargo consisted of hard pine and cotton seed in the hold, and 500 barrels of rosin on the deck. While loading, there the crew undertook to desert in the night, but the watchman on the wharf stopped them and notified the captain, who had them all put in the calaboose until the vessel was loaded. After loading, we went downstream and anchored, when a policeman brought the crew aboard. After they were on board, we asked them to turn to, and man the vessel, and on their refusing to do so, we put them all in irons, and lashed them to a spar that was to the main hatch. The towboat's crew assisted us to make sail, and towed us to sea. When the towboat dropped our line, we squared away for London. About three hours after the towboat left, the men concluded to turn to, as they could not help themselves. We had very heavy weather, making sail and taking it in most of the time, until we arrived off the banks of Newfoundland. After passing the banks, we had a very heavy hurricane, We ran under a lone foretopsail and reefed foresail and as the hurricane increased caused us to ship large quantities of water which started our deck load of rosin adrift and we could not secure it as the vessel rolled so and the heavy seas were continually breaking over us and for fear it would start the vessel leaking, the captain ordered it thrown overboard. In order to lighten her as soon as possible the captain took the wheel and I took the crew and began throwing the rosin overboard, breaking in some of them where we could and where it was not so easy to break them in, we rolled them over as they were. We had thrown over the whole deck load, all but three barrels, when, in the middle of the night, we shipped a very heavy sea. We were running dead before the wind, and I saw a large sea coming astern. I jumped up on the house, calling to the crew at the same time to look out for themselves. I had but just got hold of the rigging when the sea broke clear over the stern of the vessel. We had a boat swung astern, and the sea slammed it against the main boom, breaking it in two, and but for the boat being there, the captain would have been instantly killed at the wheel as the boat broke the force of the sea. Besides smashing our boat, it stove in the cabin and started it from the deck and filled it more than half full of water. My wife was the only woman on board and the only occupant of the cabin at the time, and she, instead of fainting as many men would have done at such a time, grasped the lamp from a socket and held it up to the binnacle so the vessel could be kept in her course as the binnacle was smashed, lamp and all. Hers was not a very comfortable position, nearly waist-deep in water holding up a lamp so the helmsman could see how to steer. That was a good sign of presence of mind in an emergency. She knew as soon as the binnacle light went out, something must be done to give those on deck light, and acted as stated above, and she was more than praised for her bravery. While holding the light, the second mate went below for a tackle to put onto the wheel or tiller as the wheel was broken, and it was the only means of safety at such a time and being in the night made it much worse, as it was not pleasant in a hurricane in a dark night. As he went below, Mrs. Crapo asked him the extent of the damage, when he replied, I shouldn't wonder if the whole stern is stove in. Her reply was, Well, if that is the case, we will not be here very long, when he made the remark that he didn't think we would last until morning. When my wife told me of the conversation later, I talked quite strongly to him for trying to frighten her, provided he thought so, he should have tried to cheer her up instead of scaring her at such a time, but he was no doubt as much or more frightened than she was. We at last succeeded in getting a tackle on the tiller so we could handle her, and with a man to attend to it, with my wife still holding the lamp, I went forward and ordered the foresail clued up, then the lower topsail still holding her before the wind. We then hoisted and set one two-reefed mainsail with a winch. The captain then ordered us to try and save the pieces of the boat hanging alongside I replied by trying to save it. We might have lost the vessel, so I ordered it cut away. We then put the rudder down to lay the vessel to. when she shipped another heavy sea, which washed the remaining three barrels of rosin from forward clear aft, and we soon launched them overboard. As soon as daylight broke, we set to work repairing the wheel and cabin door, and getting the water out of the cabin. We were all tired out and wet through, and what rest we got was by lying down where we could, just as we were for a short time. During the forenoon, the lamp in my room over my desk was taken out of its socket by the steward and put on my desk, and the rolling of the vessel threw it off and into my bed, setting the clothes on fire. The captain happened to go below and saw it just in time to avoid a terrible catastrophe and saved us all from horrible fate. We continued to lay to until about four o'clock in the afternoon when the wind moderated and the sea went down a little so we could set a reefed foresail and lone topsail. We ran that way until the next morning, when we put up the upper topsail and ran that way until we sighted Land's End, England, when the weather moderated and all sail was set, and good weather prevailed the balance of the passage to London. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mates level, And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.